At the time of this recording, the world is in the midst of a viral pandemic. Many people are afraid. Many people are in isolation, voluntary or otherwise. Some are sick or will become sick. And indeed, some are dying. In this special series of the Guru Viking podcast, I ask my guests how to work with fear, anxiety and panic. How to work with isolation. How to work with sickness and death and how to help others who are also having those experiences. Neither I nor my guests are medical professionals, and this podcast is not medical advice. Fear, sickness, and death are perennial human experiences, and it's my hope that these episodes will be of use not only to those who are being affected now by this situation, but also of use to others beyond it. So, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. It's always good to check in with Guru Viking. Let's get straight to it. So many people are worried at the moment and experiencing fear or even panic. What would you say to someone who came to you and said, Lauren, I'm afraid I'm panicking? Well, you're in reality. There are things to be afraid of. And the question is always how much biological energy or how much, how much hormonal energy to spend dealing with that fear. For example, if there's a big dog barking at us, like lunges, we go like that. There's a release of adrenaline that might help us deal with that dog or it might get in the way because dogs can sense you're afraid and then that makes them afraid of you. And so things escalate. So in dealing with real threats or imaginary threats, there's always an economy to it. And your body actually knows about this. Bodies don't like to waste energy. So they actually want to know, okay, your brain you're telling me that there's something to be scared of. How much of this, my reserves, am I supposed to spend dealing with this? And it's actually painful to get in there and do this negotiation because there's all kinds of things firing. There's, there's signals coming from different places and people telling you, oh my God, this and that. And there's truth to it because there's, there are always things to be afraid of. And as far as we know, we're all going to die someday. As far as we know, maybe there's some immortal somewhere. There's always this legend of this one person on a Sicilian <laughs> that's off there in the Himalayas, Babaji, blessing us all. But for the other 900 million 999,099, the other, everybody else out of that billion or billions, someday we're going to die. So there are things to be afraid of. So it turns out that in meditation is one of the times when bodies negotiate the economy of fear. So meditation is a time to say, bring it on. Okay, worrying brain, all you worries and all you fears, and what are you afraid of, body? And let your fears coexist 
with reality. Reality is not just relaxation. It's okay, I'm breathing. There's plenty of air. Like, okay. And there's enough air for me to breathe right now. And that's all that's all we know. So take okay, there's air. And it's like, am I thirsty? It's like, am I dying of thirst? No. Okay, well, there's water in my system. Am I hungry? Am I low? Am I low on fuel? Maybe I'm a little hungry. Maybe I need to eat right now. Maybe I'm good for a few minutes. So we check in with reality and see and look around. Are there any immediate threats? Like, is anything stalking me? Now, our bodies are used to being in nature. We evolved in nature. So in the past, say, if we all lived in a jungle or in the plains or in a forest, there really were things stalking us. We'd, We'd walk down to get water and you know, for most of human history, you know, 200,000 years or whatever, you had to usually, you'd walk to get water, whether in a few feet or a few kilometers. You'd have to have some kind of pot and walk down and get water. And when you do that, literally other creatures would be stalking you. There'd be predators that wait, looking at you and saying, whether you're a little kid or old, hmm, that human good to eat and then maybe some other big cat would say nah try to they don't they're just they're just all skin and bone it's not even worth the trouble or you know go, i know but i'm really hungry you know whether it's a a cougar or a mountain lion or some kind of cat the mosquitoes are predators they're wanting to bite you and suck your blood so in ordinary life there literally were predators wanting to eat you. And so we have instincts to track what's out to get me. Now, in modern civilization, the threats are different, but it's still the mechanics are the same. The body wants to know how much energy to spend dealing with this because bodies hate to waste energy. They hate to be inefficient. Nature loves efficiency. So this is what meditation is actually like. You come into reality, probably with your eyes open, and notice, okay, there's light or not, or I'm in darkness. I'm hearing, unless you're deaf, which case you pay attention more to your other senses. Smell, sense with your skin, are there any immediate dangers? Okay, doesn't seem to be anything stalking me. Okay, then give yourself permission to breathe freely. So keep your eyes open, let your senses track reality. And I say this because it's hard in the electronic age when we all have devices 
all of our devices are designed to steal our sense of reality and substitute somebody else's reality over our own. It's really, it's a form of play in a sense, a costume play. It's like being in a movie, like it's fun. However, it's somebody else's reality. In this reality, if you're not in immediate danger, if you're actually safe to breathe freely for a few minutes, you can give your fear tracking all the room it needs to track the world around you and then invite yourself, okay, what am I afraid of? What are the actual fears? Bring it up and let the fear, the anxiety coexist with what's actually here, which is reality. I'm free to breathe, there's plenty of air, there's light, gravity is holding me on the ground, there isn't a shortage of gravity. Like I'm still, like if I raise my arm up and let it go, it still drops. If I, if I slump, I still tend to move down towards the floor. There's no shortage of gravity or light or air. So that's what we need for this immediate moment to keep going. So then, depending on how your awareness flows, you could take a moment to appreciate, oh my God, this is so great. The earth is supporting me. I can sit here and without exerting myself, I don't float off into space. Like the astronauts in the space station, if they don't stay tethered, like have a, an umbilical cord attaching them to the, they'll actually float off into space. We don't have to worry about that. This is great. I can sit here and let go. And I don't float off into space. I just stay here on the earth. So this is reality. And into the reality of our sensory world, I am breathing. We're not blind, then I'm seeing light. Light is bouncing around and I can look anywhere I want. If you're not deaf, it's like I'm hearing sounds. This is great. I can hear waves coming from all directions. Do we take a breath? We can feel this delicious rhythm. So all these things are amazing. And this is the current reality. And meditation is a process of inviting whatever crisis we're in, and there's always a crisis. We invite our crisis to come in and mix with reality, which is usually relaxation is available. It's a mixture. Evolutionarily, meditation comes from moments of crisis, either internal crisis or external. Nobody gave up everything and went and sat in a cave because life was great. They were feeling some tremendous inner crisis that called them to go there. It's a crisis. So meditation has emerged from the human ability to adapt to crisis. And 
actually just being an ordinary person in the most perfect situation imaginable, say you're born into a time of peace, even then life is one damn crisis after the other. First you're in the womb, then you're born, that's a big crisis. Like, oh my God, I was just getting used to being in the womb, now blam, here I am. Then your baby get used to nursing. I have all these friends with babies. So you can see the baby, okay, what's, what's that? What's going on here? What's the breast? All right, okay. They get, then they get restless and start running around. Then it's like, okay, then you gotta learn to speak. You could see babies work all day long, ah, ah, speaking. Then they're running around, they're not off to school. Then they're 10 or 11 or 12, they got it really wired on the kid and then puberty hits and blam, your whole body changes. And then you're in high school, then you're in college or then you're working. It's just one damn crisis after another. We're always adapting and bodies are geniuses at adapting. So meditation is actually savoring the crisis that you're in and welcoming all of your inner resources to bring the best of you to meet that crisis. And if you take this attitude, then you can do any meditation and have a good time. The main thing is to welcome your worry, make meditation a place where you say, bring it on. Come on, all you worries, all you fears. Come on, tell me, what's up? Tell me, come on, what's up? And then as you listen to the fears and feel them, just be adding little bits of relaxation. Be adding little bits of contact with your immediate sensory reality. So forget the idea that meditation is silencing your mind or quieting things down or calming things down. Rather, meditation is cherishing the thrill and the challenge of being alive. And I'm just, I'm just gonna be here and to feel everything. So over to you, James. People are falling sick or will fall sick, some people. What would you say to someone um, who came to you and said, Lauren, I've, I've just been diagnosed with a sickness or Lauren, I'm actually sick? Well, bodies get sick. This happens. And we're living in a miraculous time that in itself is a crisis for humanity. As a result of human beings learning to master the material world, there's about 7.7 .7 billion people on Earth. And why are there seven, almost eight billion people on Earth? Well, people aren't having sex more than they used to. People have been having sex and having babies forever. Mm. What's different is that people aren't dying the way they used to. Historically, there'll be either a famine where there's no food and many people starve, and there's dozens of plagues, bacterial infections and viral infections that would sweep through and kill 30%, 50%, 70%, 80%, 90%, 95% of the entire population. This has happened again and again and again and again throughout human history. There have been times when 
the population of the earth would probably shrinking because diseases would be killing so many people that for hundreds of years, there was hardly anybody. So you and I and everyone we know, every human being is descended from the five people out of a hundred or one person out of a hundred or 20 people out of a hundred that survived this winnowing process. So there'd be 5% of people would survive because their immune system was able to adapt and, and figure huh. out how to live. And then those people would survive and expand. And then another thing would come through and kill off most people. And then again and again and again, the body that you're in, whoever you are that hears this, your body is the result of life figuring out how to live and how to adapt to these challenges of viruses and bacteria, just inconceivable brilliance at what survival is. So what you wanna do is give your body a chance, the fighting chance to cope with the current crises. And there's a series of crises. One is the restriction and fear you have to figure out what can I do that's appropriate, like we are all being told to wash our hands and learn to not touch your face. Um, so how, how do we deal with that? When is it safe? Like, how do we touch each other? How do we make love? <laughs> who, can, who, can you, who can you hug? That's a challenge. Like, do we all wash our, take a shower and then we can hug? Then if you're actually sick, what's the best protocol for dealing with your particular illness? Well, one of the things that is universal is you need to get well, you need sleep, you need to rest, you need oxygen, and there's you need to breathe, you need water. So these are easily available Usually water and air are immediately available. What can you do about sleeping? Well, sleep is instinctive and natural. What you can do is metabolize your fear. You can have a time separate from your sleep time when you say bring it on. That's where meditation comes in. So what you need to do besides meditation then though, is have people to talk to because it's more efficient to process some of your fears uh, on the phone or in person. Everybody knows sane human beings. Somewhere in your social world, there's sensible people. They could be a grandmother. It could be that guy over there. You have a savvy friend. Talk to a sane and sober friend who's not gonna feed you conspiracy theories, which are a kind of mind virus. So that you process your fears and keep strengthening your social bonds because human beings are social. Then when you go into meditation, you can feel like you're in touch with your healthy friends and give yourself time to heal. On that note, what would you advise 
somebody who says, well, people around me are sick or my loved ones are sick or my you know, loved ones perhaps dying. How can I support them? How can I support their mental state, their state of mind? Not as a sick person myself, but as someone who wants to help a sick person. Well, there's nothing different now than at any other time in your life, except that there's the identification of a pandemic. There's a possibility of being contagious. The thing that's um, actually the scariest about this virus is that people can be asymptomatic for over a week and contagious before they get sick. That's, that's actually the scariest thing and the most dangerous part of it. And um, so going over and visit people that aren't, that um, you don't know whether you're um, infecting them or not. So that is a problem. That's a real problem and everybody is confounded by this. So taking that, so nothing's different, just human contact, observing proper sanitation, just do what you ordinarily would do. Some people are, for all kinds of reasons, including this pandemic, uh, facing the prospect of death. What would you say to somebody who, who came to you and said, Lauren, I'm very sick, I think I'm dying, or actually I know I'm dying? It's always the case. I mean, this always happens. And we, we always, we all always have to deal with this. In a way, it's great because say worse comes to worse with this particular disease and say 8% of everybody over 50 dies and 2% of everybody under 50 dies. That'll be maybe a couple hundred million people on earth might die over the next several years and it'll be terrible the doctors will all be exhausted the doctors will be getting sick they are they'll be exhausted beyond all comprehension they'll be burnt out and many bad things will happen and life will go on i mean and the the good part of this what's kind of miraculous is that these plagues that have killed off 90 95 percent of humanity over and over and over again forever since served in human beings that this is not one of those this is a terrible thing it's not it's stronger than a flu but it's not the end of the world and it was caught almost immediately. And the world is functioning beautifully. The Chinese did an incredible thing. Once they determined, oh my God, this is a plague. This is possibly a pandemic. This is highly contagious. It's jumped probably from animals to people and it's exploding and no one's immune system has ever seen this before. Once Chinese figure that out, bland, they did something that only the Chinese could do. They quarantined hundreds of millions of people. So there have been stumbles 
and it's it's sad because in retrospect this could have been prevented like SARS was it could be, have been actually exterminated but people stumbled governments stumbled politicians stumbled and to try to protect their own power they sacrificed the lives of millions of people this happened but the systems are functioning in an extraordinary way and the whole world the doctors of the world are practicing their cooperation there are people on earth who dedicated their entire lives to preventing disease these are these angelic masterful human beings their entire incarnation has been dedicated to protecting the health of the human race no matter where they are these people have been born anywhere on earth and they dedicate themselves they risk everything to protect the bodies of humanity and they specialize they still have 15 20 years of training in identifying and preventing diseases and the, all those people around the world are at work studying this and they have labs and eventually they'll come up with a vaccine and in a few years this will very likely this form of the virus will be no more no it might it'll might mutate into new forms which is hmm i hadn't thought about that but anyway these people are at work so in many ways the world is working in a sublime and coordinated fashion it's unique i mean i don't know if any time in the history of this planet that the whole world has come together to cooperate <clears throat> the governments are talking to each other the doctors are talking to each other the systems are cooperating and yes there are errors And those errors will cost millions of lives but most likely it won't cost the billions of lives the civilization will continue life will continue so in this sense the fact that this isn't way worse the fact that this isn't a disease that's highly contagious and kills 50% of everyone but the fact that people can get sick and die is nothing new So there is nothing there is nothing new. We've only forgotten this because as a result of healthcare and and medical science over the last century these diseases have mostly been eliminated. We've forgotten. Do you have any words for somebody who might actually be for whatever reason facing the prospect of of their own death in a near sense? No. Well that's what you know priests are for and and theologians and grandmothers and grandfathers i mean i'm 70 so i should be smarter than i am but i'm i'm too much of a california surfer <laughs> to like be have like a beard and yeah. and utter uh wise and cryptic comments everybody has grandparents and priests that are that are better than me at giving those those little quote, great little quotes of things like yeah we're all going to die everybody better than me at that okay my my last question in this special episode of of the podcast many people are 
limiting their social contact, they're isolating uh, voluntarily or otherwise. What advice do you have for people who find themselves in a period of extended seclusion? Yeah. Now, here's something you can do. So if your daily rhythm has been interrupted, you have to consciously construct a daily rhythm for yourself. For example, before the plague, before the virus, we would fearlessly go out. You go to the, go get some tea or coffee. You go to the gym. You go dancing. You go to yoga. You go, where would you go? You go for a walk. You go to go grab breakfast. Um, you go to work. You go hang out. So all these things are interrupted. So life is rhythm. So you need to consciously impose two things on yourself. One is work and the other is rest. Now, they play with each other. The way to get a good night's sleep is to work hard and get exhausted doing you, doing your life. In a, in order to have a certain amount of exercise, you'd have mental work, you'd talk with your friends, you'd dance or party. You get good and tired and then conk out and go to sleep and that's what's rejuvenating and you need to get up and do it again. So life is a swing of opposites. If you're isolated, work up, what you can do is kind of be like a self-contained world. Have some kind of exercise that you do. Go, go walk in nature, get tired. Um, if you're so inclined, do learn how to do workout at home using body weight exercises. Have some, if you're um, not, if you're having to work from home, have something that particularly challenging, like just make up something. I'm going to learn Chinese. I'm going to learn algebra. I'm going to learn Sanskrit. I'm going to learn whatever. I'm going to memorize poetry. Work your brain to exhaustion. So you're just like, oh, my God, I just can't stand. I'm like one more line of Shakespeare that I'm memorizing. Whatever. Invent some kind of thing that ordinarily you'd never do. Like if you were stuck on a desert island, oh yeah, I would like memorize a, a, a sonnet or learn to read musical notation or learn that language. Have some kind of work, to, and you can do this online, where you're, you're just like exhausting your brain, like, oh my God, it's just, <laughs> And then socialize. Talk to people that you love and tell them how much you love them so that you take the stuff that you would ordinarily do spontaneously and put it in because you need to work hard so that you get exhausted physically, emotionally and mentally. And then you fall asleep and sleep like a baby as much as, as best you can. And then you wake up and then go go do your, your thing again. You have to artificially impose this rhythm because life is rhythm. And the tendency is, in a time like this, would be to stay up late looking at your phone or looking at the computer. Mm -hmm. And that if that interferes with your sleep time, then you won't get the deep healing rejuvenation. And bodies need, and cr it's crazy how much sleep we need. We really need they say like seven hours 
And because it's like after five hours of sleeping and dreaming and sleeping and dreaming and sleeping and dreaming and sleeping and dreaming, your body enters a state of deep rejuvenation where these healing hormones are released after five hours or so. And then you get to linger in this coma-like state and there is rejuvenation and deep healing and youth thinning. The body, you feel younger after a sleep like that. And oddly enough, the way to have a deep sleep is to use your life energy up physically, emotionally, mentally, get tired. That's just, you have to consciously swing the pendulum of life if you're isolated. You have to like push to get enough work so that you're truly tired and then consciously let go, unplug and dive over into sleeping and dreaming and then get up. You have to consciously push this rhythm. And that's what you can do for your health. Because you can't stay in bed all the time. And you can't stay awake all the time. That's what's weird. Life is rhythm. And meditation is rhythm. And so when you're isolated and your ordinary flow is disrupted, you have to become a Zen master of your own body rhythm. That's fantastic. Do you have any... Closing comments, Lauren? Well, actually, we're all really lucky. We are the most privileged people that have ever lived, lived in the history of the earth. There's no one else that's ever lived except maybe a few kings and queens here and there that had access to anything like the knowledge that we all have at our fingertips that's had teeth. People didn't have teeth. Throughout history, people had toothaches and there was nothing to do. Your teeth would rot in your skull and kill you. We have drinking water, most of us. They're food. No one has ever had the privileges that if you're just, if you're able to access the internet, you're, you're one of the top one-tenth of one percent or even few of everybody that's ever lived. You're one of the most elite human beings that's ever lived. Now, life in the past, maybe for two years, from the time that you were, say, 16 to 18, running around naked in the forest or on the savanna, it would have been fun until a lion eats you or whatever. You'd have maybe, if you lived and most people died as babies, you know, throughout history, until the la until recently, if you were one of a hundred children born 10 years later, everybody you knew was dead mostly. Like 70% of everybody you were born with was dead before the age of 10. But anyway, there would be a time in life when for a couple of years, if you're one of the few people that lived, you'd have a good time until you lost your teeth, until you got blinded, or until you got it, your arm was bit off by, by some serpent or whatever. I'm sure that there was a lot of fun to be had in this life very, very short. But we're living in this amazing moment that the ancestors have given us, where there are 7.7 .7 billion people, and most of us have access to wealth that our great-grandparents would just think is heaven. So how do we live this way? This is what the challenge is for humanity. How do we live 
Otherwise, it might all go away. If we don't learn how to welcome this gift, it's true, it might all go away. The only way that 7.7 billion people can continue to exist on Earth is if we all cooperate and learn to cooperate at a higher degree than we ever have in history. Humanity is now one global tribe. This has never happened in history, ever, that the entire world is one interconnected tribe of people where if somebody sneezes, literally someone sneezed in China a couple of months ago and it spread all over the world and it's being tracked. Every person with a fever pretty much in the world, anytime anybody walked into a hospital or a doctor's office with a fever, it's actually being recorded by the doctors of the world and they're trying to figure out how do we prevent this from spreading. That's never happened before in the history of the world. It's, it could have happened in a little tiny village of 20 people, but it's never happened on this scale. So that's our evolutionary challenge as human beings is to learn to treat the entire human race as if it's our extended family. That's, that is the challenge. And as humans, we'll either make it or something catastrophic might happen. Lauren Roche, thank you very much. Thank you, Guru Viking. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. For more information and more episodes in this series, visit www.guruviking.com.